Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Anna Feigenbaum. She is the author of a terrific new book. You should check it out. It's called Tear Gas, From the Battlefields of World War I to the Streets of Today. Anna Feigenbaum is also co-author of the book Protest Camps, and her work has appeared in Vice, The Atlantic, Al Jazeera, America, The Guardian, Salon, Financial Times, Open Democracy, New Internationalist, and Waging Nonviolence. Violence. She is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Media and Communication at Bournemouth University. If I said that right, her website is AnnaFeigenbaum.com and you can follow her on Twitter at DRFigtree. Anna Feigenbaum, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. This seems a, a very important book, and I think people may think even more important after they've they've read it. The use of tear gas is spreading and increasing uh, rapidly, is it not? Yes, we've seen the use of tear gas take a really sharp rise since about 2011 with the Arab uprisings and the Occupy movement. People that work in the industry reported that sales of tear gas, in fact, tripled during that time period, and we're continuing to see growth. One of the things that happened was that we saw a lot of exporting and movement of products between countries during that time. And how the industry has actually responded is by opening up even more regional offices. So they've kind of realized that there's a big demand for importing tear gas from places that traditionally manufacture it, Brazil, Israel, the US, to countries that don't have their own manufacturing systems in the MENA region and along East Africa. And so we're really seeing markets booming there, as well as in Southeast Asia, which has kind of gotten in on this game in the last decade or so. It's not a harmless game, right? People get the idea that tear gas is preferable to other things because it doesn't really hurt anybody. That's not exactly true, is it? No, in fact, the very name tear gas is where things become misleading right away. Often people, if they only have encountered this through the media, they just see this kind of cloud of smoke. And so it's very hard to understand what the actual effects of it are. But of course, anyone who has experienced tear gas that might be listening knows that it does much more than just make you cry the way that happens when you're chopping onions. Tear gas is actually affects all of all of the kind of membranes in your of your skin and it it can affect your lungs, it can affect your breathing, it can make people diarrhea, vomit, nauseous. Um, it can actually cause permanent damage um, that's respiratory, it can cause suffocation. Um, when deaths occur from tear gas, it often happens because too much was released in a small space or someone had a kind of pre-existing condition that meant that they couldn't handle the amount of toxins that were released. Um, they're also very dangerous because people get hit with the canisters or the grenades that deliver this toxic chemical. Uh, and oftentimes when we see fractures or lost eyes um, or, or even deaths that often come from, from hits to the head, uh, it's because of the, the what, what are called kind of canister shots. So getting hit with that device that carries the weapon because those are fired from basically what are very large guns at very high speeds. 
And yet we hear not only talking heads on Fox News like Megyn Kelly refer to pepper spray as essentially a food product, uh, but we also uh, see, and I'm learning this from your book, Tear Gas, uh, that government departments and agencies uh, rely on a report from 1970 that recommended treating tear gas as a drug rather than a weapon at all. How uh, Explain that. To me. Yeah, so in this kind of uh, what had been going on really since the end of the First World War, this attempt to distance the use of tear gas for domestic policing purposes from those poison gases that were used during the war, because that's, of course, as I detail in the book, how we saw the rise of tear gas was from the trenches uh, into the streets. And so this uh, move that that they needed to make from by bringing tear gas into the uh, domestic space required also disassociating it from that wartime use. Uh, and so one of the things that ended up happening um, was that they really downplayed the fact that this was a weapon. And that kind of uh, crystallized in this um, decision that was made during the 1970s after the mass use of, of tear gas for the first time um, in Northern Ireland, um, where um, so doctors that were connected to the government were brought in uh, to do this inquiry and the inquiry uh, and we're told to, to, to treat tear gas like it was a drug. And so this was part of this kind of further distancing of this kind of police tactic from a chemical weapon that, that had been banned in warfare. And in fact, tear gas continues to be um, banned in warfare, though the laws around that are very fuzzy. What I mean, it seems that tear gas use has been really normalized, whereas the use of certain other chemical weapons has become the epitome of evil. I mean, the thing that a mere accusation of its use can be used to justify a massive war uh, on uh, innocent people that live near where it was supposedly used. What is what is the actual uh, physical, chemical distinction between things like tear gas, pepper spray, and then the chemical weapons that are, are not supposed to be used. So everything is kind of evaluated on a scale of, of lethality. And so this logic of what's called less lethality or uh, sometimes non-lethality has to do with the dose that will kill you. So if I am taking um, Tylenol, I am, would have to really, really, really take a bottle, two bottles, for there to be any chance of it being uh, lethal. Whereas if I was taking a very powerful uh, pain medication like a codeine, I would need less of it for it to be able to, to, to kill me or to cause um, lethal or devastating kind of effects, right? So chemical weapons are evaluated in a similar um, kind of way. So, so chemicals that are very likely to cause you uh, severe injury or death are going to... Um, be it might be that they're just considered all the time any dose is evil or any dose is bad um, whereas chemicals like tear gas or pepper spray the dose that you need to kill somebody in a clinical situation so so in the, this kind of measure of like how much would you need to dose someone with uh, is very very high so it's not supposed to kill you and so they get this idea that something is less lethal refers to the the, the fact that uh, you know, so much of it can be dispersed on people without them supposed to be being able to die. And then the way that that plays out, of course, is not, uh, doesn't, doesn't work because the world is not, you know, a clinical laboratory. Um, but 
with something like a siren gas or a, or a mustard gas from the war, those are things that had much stronger effects um, or that you needed smaller doses of in order to have that kind of severe effect. So it's, it's a kind of interesting one because we can actually see how this drug logic of less lethality uh, puts these things actually back in the same camp when we talk about it like that. Like these are all chemical weapons. It, they're just administered in different doses with different kinds of effects. Indeed. Uh, it, it seems that, I mean, your book, Tear Gas, Anna Feigenbaum presents a, a history of how we got to here. Uh, and, and it seems that this distinction was not as clear cut in many people's minds for uh, many years. And that after World War I, uh, with the United States coming in to, to, to lead the way in promoting the use of tear gas, uh, the Brits were a lot more reluctant because of their experience with with chemical weapons in in world war one is that right yes so one of the arguments that historians have made is that because the british were so much closer to the 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 pains and and the horrors of dealing with chemical weapons than the americans who came into the war much later um that the brits were less part of this kind of bandwagon to, to immediately turn this into a civilian policing uh, product. Uh, the Americans had also had a lot uh, invested monetarily into the chemical business. 10% of all US chemists were enlisted into the war effort. Giant companies like DuPont were making a lot of money off of this um, shift towards chemical weapons. And so a lot of both the, these people as well as these industries didn't want to lose that innovation and those gains and those possibilities that arose from the war industry. Uh, in other words, they had a monetary and a bureaucratic interest in things like the U.S. chemical warfare quote-unquote, service, uh, not ceasing to exist, but, but finding some other use, some other market uh, after World War I had ended. Yes, and in fact, uh, very powerful public relations experts and lawyers and publicists were brought into the effort to turn uh, what was called wartime gases into peacetime uses. So they were actually teaming up with people in the military, with chemists, uh, to, in order to create a demand uh, in the market for these products. It, this seems like, as you say in the book, as at least as dramatic a turn toward militarizing local police uh, as anything we've seen in, in recent decades with uh, so many military weapons being unloaded on, on local police forces and war training being given to local police forces. I mean, this was a, this was a major step in that story, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it makes sense to, to look at all of these kinds of moments that I try to trace out in the book where there's an idea that we need more riot control. And usually this idea that we need more riot control is a response to major social and political turmoil that is happening. So if we look at that through the lens of U.S. history, though this is somewhat comparative more globally, it, that push for tear gas that happened uh, in the late 1920s and early 1930s is a response to unionization, to the effects of the Great Depression. Uh, and this is really where tear gas first gets used is to crush labor uprisings. And that's a really important part 
of U.S. history and of thinking about where these moments, what we mean when we say police militarization, and how we trace that along these histories. So the other one I trace out in the book is, of course, the 1960s, with more, many more of us are familiar with, uh, where we saw the Vietnam protests and the uh, civil rights protests put down through a rise in uh, riot control tactics, a lot of bringing in of the National Guard, who were, of course, not always well trained, and a lot of kind of um, what happened is as those kind of tra tragedies happened with the National Guard, the argument would be we need better trained police so that that doesn't happen again. So we need to have police forces that are ready to respond to what are these kind of major important moments of, of social unrest. And, and so then I think we again, right, get one in the kind of, um, uh, I, I would trace it less in this logic, less through the kind of drug war argument that's normally made around police militarization and more into uh, where we, what we see happen then in Ferguson, where the Black Lives Matters movement and uh, the kinds of you know, post-financial collapse uh, protests that we are seeing is being met with this same, again, idea that we need the police to be ready to respond to people uprising. So I, I, I think I take a slightly different take on, on what it means to say that police are, are militarizing and thinking about it more in terms of when is it that social unrest gets deemed a riot that needs to be put down with ever more severe forms of force and that we continue to legitimize newer and newer forms of force in these moments. And some of these uh, techniques such as tear gas uh, are promoted as preferable to other weapons, uh, but as you point out in the book, are generally used in combination with other weapons. Uh, the tear gas is used, the scene is given the appearance of an unruly mob, whether it was or not, because of the tear gas, and the police uh, proceed to use their sticks or their guns or their other, other weaponry uh, in combination with the tear gas. Yes, so tear gas is something that, in a sense, we might say produces the riot. Uh, this is both true in terms of the photo that gets uh, spread through the media. So once we see that cloud of tear gas, once we see the people running, once we see the chaos, then we've created a media image of a riot or a disorderly protest. And that was actually an early marketing slogan all the way back in the 1920s when they were trying to get um, police to buy this product and they would say that you can use tear gas to create the unruly scene. You turn a peaceful protest into an unruly mob. So it's long been known that this is part of the tactic of using tear gas. Once you have an unruly mob or the vision of an unruly mob, then you can legitimate all kinds of increasing forms of force around them. It's also very hard to see where a shot is coming from or a baton beating is coming from when it's happening in this kind of, through this smoke in this kind of running um, chaotic uh, scene. Also, unlike firearms, most often less lethal weapons don't have the same uh, weapons tracking. So with a gun, the bullet is matched to the, fi the, the firearm and the firearm is matched to the officer. But with less lethal weapons, there's often not that kind of chain of accountability. Uh, and so it's much harder to know who shot, some, who, shot who uh, or where something was fired from. In, in terms of, of shamelessness in marketing, uh, I'm reminded that you recount in the book that the, that the use of tear gas or similar weapons on the, the bonus army in Washington, D.C., the, the World War I veterans seeking their bonuses, uh, photographs of that were put into marketing brochures to promote 
tear gas. Is that is that really true? Um, yes, uh, you know there the kinds of imagery that uh, these organizations these companies are using uh, often it, you know today it comes from uh, YouTube so it's basically like the equivalent of using um, these these protest uh, protest pictures uh, from 1932 and, and they would also use pictures you know of, of union meetings and marches being disrupted um, and and today they actually take sometimes protesters own videos of, of protests and then create promotional materials out of those uh, and even more disturbing i find they create training materials out of those and so they'll be training people how to fire on protesters by showing uh footage from uh from, from things like an occupy demonstration yeah it it seems in the in the course of the the growing acceptance of of using tear gas on people over the over the years it it was promoted as you say as something to be used on mobs uh, uh, it's it was promoted as something to be used on foreigners on savages uh, a great deal of of racism involved i think uh and you count you you look at uh points in the history of britain coming to accept it uh and you point to to both palestine and and india can you can you talk a little bit about those those moments yeah so going back to something we were just discussing a little while ago britain was a bit slower to uh grant the use of tear gases for civilian policing uh because of their experiences during the first world war so that changed during the start of the kind of colonial uprisings in India um, and um, in the British colonies throughout this time. And of course, you know, Brit Britain had attempted to colonize about 90% of the world. You know, we often forget that because the empire is not so big today. Uh, but, you know, they really um, were everywhere and they're, 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 the Brit British wealth completely depended on the kinds of financial um, arrangements and, and, and that they had going in, um, in these colonies. And so as people in the colonies started to resist this, uh, you know, there was a lot of panic and the homeland people that were making a lot of money off of the colonies uh, needed to find a way to contain the uprisings. And so they started to float the idea of using tear gas as a means of quelling uh, what were mostly kind of labor disputes that were happening in the colonies. Uh, and they were turning uh, to these other countries that were having success, the US, South Africa, Germany, uh, th that and saying, hey, you know, these guys over here, they're putting down their uprisings with tear gas. You know, why aren't we putting down our uprisings with tear gas? And the, the thing that was particularly um, troubling for the uh, British colonizers um, in the uh, case of India was the rise of passive resistance uh, that we associate with, with Gandhi. Um, which is, of course, more complicated than that. But uh, And the problem with passive resistance, especially when it's done by women and children, is that it looks really bad if you uh, fire on, uh, on people who are unarmed. Um, and uh, after the Amistar massacre happened in India, where hundreds of people were fired on who were unarmed, um, the... British government was like, we cannot have that happen again. You know, it was really it looked really, really bad, um, both to people at home and abroad. And so tear gas started to be sort of uh, suggested for use as a way to not have that kind of tragedy happen again. Uh, so you had this kind of 
PR diplomacy image being managed on one hand, and then on the other hand, you had this tool for maintaining your laborers uh, to, to go to work and produce the wealth that, you, that your country kind of depended on. Um, and so this, th this is what became the kind of justification for the use of, of tear gas in the British colonies. And again, there were many British colonies at this time. Uh, and so that was really a big tipping point in the spread uh, globally of tear gas. We're speaking with Anna Feigenbaum, whose book is called Tear Gas. Uh, obviously, it's misused and abused. Uh, it's used in situations where no weapon was called for rather than a better weapon. Uh, it's, it's used in caves in Vietnam and in, it's shot into people's houses and confined spaces. Is there a, is there a proper use for tear gas? Is there a beneficial uh, way to, you know, acceptably deploy tear gas? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important question because we, you know, we don't know what would happen if we just said, okay, no more le le lethal, less lethal weapons, let's get rid of all of them tomorrow. You know, that's not a scenario that we would probably um, advocate because we don't know what the, what the outcome would be. Um, to, to use an example, so in the, in the, um, during the Tour de France recently, um, there was uh, some, some protesters and uh, the police um, gassed, uh, they were trying to gas the protesters, but of course this is um, what I described in the book as an atmospheric weapon, so it goes into the atmosphere so you can't control exactly what space it's going to be in. Um, and so it hit a bunch of people that were also, you know, watching the race and, 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 and biking in the race. Uh, and, it, you know, of course, this is, uh, doesn't make France look very good. So it got a lot of international press coverage. Um, and one of the NGOs that we work with, uh, their line was, okay, if you've got this situation and you really feel like you need to contain this protest from uh, this this event that's going on, then use the, the, the right weapon, the right level of force for that moment. And so there's a kind of tear gas that you can spray that has more of a direct kind of line of, of fire rather than, rather than the... Um, the one that we call gas, which which seeps more into the atmosphere. And so there are these kinds of small choices and decisions that can be made in those moments that can reduce, again, if what we're kind of trying to constantly reduce is the lethality or the lethal possibility or the harm uh, from these weapons. So then there are those kinds of decisions um, that can be made. But those are... Uh, those are pragmatic decisions, right? Those are practical decisions that don't kind of get at the deeper root of the question, um, which is, you know, what do we do about social unrest and how do we treat, how do governments treat social unrest? And, um, and you know, are our weapons, our police forces, the right response to, to social unrest more broadly, which I think, you know, is a question not just for me, but, you know, for the, for, for a kind of civil society uh, to think about from many, many angles. Um, but I think that we always want to be asking both those questions, you know, what would be better protocol in this instance, but then also like, did this protest even demand that kind of response? And like, what, what are the actual reasons that people have, uh, come out to protest, and and is there something that can be dealt with um, on a different level there that we need to ask about? Well, I agree with asking both those types of questions, but I exempt myself from your we when you say we wouldn't advocate banning yeah. tear gas entirely because I would, and I wrote a review of your book in which I said that I would. And so my so my question to you is, what would be the downside? What would be the immediate short term or long term negative impact of ridding the world of tear gas. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would call tomorrow for a ban. And considering I just spent five years, no, I know you wouldn't. But I'm asking, what uh, would be the downside? No, I, I mean, I think it's. I think that's what I think is an is an interesting question. You know, it's is that. Um, I guess what I want to say is the reason that I am reluctant to just make that call for a ban is because I worry about the kind of weapon that would be brought in to replace it. So when I go to these conventions now and you see the kinds of, um, you know, drones that are being used and developed for policing, uh, some of which will fire tear gas, but will fire other kinds of things as well. You know, when you see the facial recognition uh, technology that places like Axon are putting out, um, so it's the rebrand of Taser so that we don't think about Taser as something that kills people. Um, You know, when you see these kinds of innovations, you know, it's, it's hard to know what to call to ban on the level of the individual weapon. Uh, and I think that's where what we actually might need are, are larger calls um, looking at things like what would uh, that around major police reform or police abolition, where we think about other ways of, you know, policing and security. Um, but thankfully, other people have spent five years writing very smart books uh, on how to answer that question. Well, I, I like the way you framed the question a few minutes ago, which was, you know, that, that we wouldn't want to just ban less lethal weapons. Uh, but if we did ban lethal and less lethal weapons, uh, then that would cover both tear gas and any worse replacement that moved in to fill the gap uh, in the absence of tear gas, right? I mean, if we were to, if we were to attempt and to succeed in, in banning all of all less lethal and and lethal weapons, uh, then the fear that tear gas would be replaced by something worse uh, wouldn't be a reason not to ban tear gas, right? No, I think it's more that you're looking at the interaction between surveillance technology and these kinds of uh, more traditional um, street-based weapons. And so um, things, you know, like, for example, the UK police are much less likely to um, use weapons and they are to use surveillance practices. Um, does that make people in the UK feel you know, safer and more free? Uh, no, does it mean less people in the UK are killed? Yes. Um, so, you know, but this choice that we have to make, or it feels like we have to make in a police state between, uh, you know, do I, do I want to be shot or do I want to be filmed and kept on file? Um, doesn't feel quite, quite, uh, rewarding or adequate as a way of, of, uh, kind of addressing the larger problems of policing in society. Yeah. So, uh, so setting aside what I would do, there's there are several proposals in the book. We have just a, a few minutes left uh, for what you would do um, uh, in terms of of restricting the use of tear gas. Can you can you talk about uh, what you think should be done? Yeah. So I think some really basic things need to happen. First, there needs to be public disclosure of the trade and sale of tear gas. Tear gas is largely purchased through public taxpaying money, and yet there is absolutely no way at the moment for the public to know who is buying and selling it is just is not made publicly available or accountable, that information. So we need public and open data. Second, I think that we need uh, to have, um, in the same way that it's been called for for, by police shootings, we need to have uh, the duty to record uh, severe injuries and deaths that occur at the hand of less lethal weapons. So right now we have no idea how many people have been killed by these things. Uh, either in a, in a local level, on a national level, or on an international level. And so it's very hard to make any kinds of larger decisions when we don't have that kind of data. 
Um, and third, I think we need to have adequate independent testing and training. Right now, most of the training that people receive comes from the companies themselves um, or comes uh, from things like one SWAT team to another. So we don't really have any kind of independent monitoring. Uh, you know, even NATO has said that we don't really understand the real life effects of these weapons. And that just doesn't seem uh, like the a situation we should let continue. Uh, I think there needs to be clarification under what's called the Chemical Weapons Convention, which is the thing that permits the use of tear gas for civilian policing, but, but not for war. And so lots of people in the kind of policy world are advocating and have been for years for there to be a clarification around the definition of what counts as a chemical agent so that we can uh, better make kind of policy decisions on these uh, around things like should it be banned or should it be limited um, on, a, on an international level. It's a, it's a wonderful book uh, that will get you thinking about all of these questions and hopefully engaged in taking some of those actions. It's called Tear Gas from the Battlefields of World War I to the Streets of Today. We've been speaking with the author Anna Feigenbaum. Anna, thank you very much for taking the time to come on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.